0: Our top story this week, the mystery of the Autumn Dawn is solved, but controversy around the beleaguered cargo vessel persists. The ship was finally spotted over 3,000 miles off course of Russia's Kamchatya Peninsula, where the Russian Navy, assisted by special forces of the Russian Army, have regained control of the ship. Upon hearing of the ship's recovery, the government of China made a formal request that the ship be sailed to the nearest serviceable port, but in a move that is raising tensions between the two countries, The Russian government announced they have quarantined the ship and are sailing it nearly 2,000 miles to the port city of Vladivostok. RLA's Chuck Fleming will bring us the latest in this developing story. Department of Homeland Security downgrades Miami's threat level yet again. As Mayor Santiago Vasquez's forces continue to reclaim larger sections of the city, U.S. Army combat units began arriving at Miami International Airport this week from Fort Benning. All this comes amid a House investigation of the circumstances around the federal government's late arrival to the fight, with Florida Governor Pete Peterson appearing before the House Armed Services Committee to answer questions. We'll bring you all the details. The U.S. Surgeon General released a statement this week urging all Americans to get their flu shot. As the pandemic virus continues to command large parts of the country, with new outbreaks being routinely reported, the Department of Health and Human Services is hoping to avoid the confusion the nation experienced in last year's flu season, where many Americans experienced discrimination and sometimes violence when flu symptoms were confused with the RADM1 virus. This comes amid controversy in Colorado, where the state legislature there passed a bill requiring the medical community to provide patient information on any person refusing to participate in the vaccination program. Prosecutors in Nevada were preparing felony charges against two men who stood accused of violating the Los Angeles dead zone, but military authorities may have rescued them from indictment. The pair were trying to sell a -a one-of-a-kind baseball card to a dealer in Las Vegas when they were apprehended and accused of looting the card from within the dead city. However, when army intelligence heard how deep into Los Angeles the would-be thieves had penetrated to achieve the heist, they took an interest in the case. RLA's Laura Sanders is in Nevada and will bring us the latest. And at this week's discussion table, I'll be joined by Father Arthur Martin, where we'll discuss a theologian's interpretation of the pandemic. You're listening to Radio Living America, and I'm your host, Brian Andrews. We begin today's program with the latest chapter in the continuing saga of the autumn dawn the 1,500-foot cargo ship that went missing after experiencing a catastrophic outbreak of the reanimating virus three weeks ago. The vessel, which was originally scheduled to arrive at the port of Shanghai on July 10th, was recovered by the Russian Navy in a remote part of the North Pacific, some 3,100 miles from its intended destination. At a press conference at Naval Headquarters in St. Petersburg, Russian authorities provided this update.
1: Captain Alexey Novikov, Press Secretary. I am Captain Alexei Novikov, Press Secretary for the Russian Navy. With me today is Admiral Mikhail Samarin, Commander of the Russian Pacific Fleet, to provide an update of our recovery of the cargo vessel Autumn Dawn.
2: The Admiral has some
1: prepared remarks, but we will not be taking questions at this time. I am Admiral Mikhail Samarin, commanding officer of the Russian Pacific Fleet. On July 30th at approximately 0500 hours, a fishing vessel operating in the vicinity 200 miles east of the Kamchatsky Krai radioed the Russian maritime border guard that it had spotted a large cargo vessel traveling in circles at high speed. The Corvette RFS Pravorni was deployed from the naval base at Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky. Upon making contact with the vessel on August 2nd, an assault group from the 308th Detachment of the 14th Special Purpose Brigade boarded the ship and neutralized the crew.
3: We are in full
1: control of the ship, but because of contamination threat, we are sailing it to the port at Vladivostok, where it can be safely quarantined, while we evaluate the health of our brave special forces who went on board, as well as any residual threat from contamination of the ship or its cargo.
0: At her current speed, we expect the autumn dawn
1: to arrive at port sometime tomorrow afternoon.
0: Chinese officials immediately protested the Russian decision to sail the ship 1,900 miles to Vladivostok, when there was a port facility 200 miles from where the vessel was recovered. Reporting with the government's response from Washington, D.C. is RLA's Chuck Fleming.
3: Brian, I'm here at the Harry S. Truman Building, where sources within the State Department are telling me officials are very concerned by this move from the Russians to not sail the autumn dawn to the nearest port, where a new crew could be flown in from China to take command of the ship and continue sailing it to shanghai secretary of state tillman tried to reflect a presence of calm this morning when he held a press briefing for reporters here's some of what he had to say
4: the united states is holding off on filing official protest until the ship has made port and we have a chance to gauge russian intentions forward of that point while we understand that russian security forces came in contact with the reanimated crew and it is fully within their prerogative to follow a reasonable quarantine procedure as it relates to their forces that boarded the Autumn Dawn, it is our sincere hope that the Russian government will release the vessel and allow it to continue on to its intended destination as soon as possible.
3: Despite that very measured response, people here are telling me that the State Department is very concerned that these unusual moves by the Russian government reflect a nefarious strategy in what was already a paradigm of strained relations between the United States and Russia following U.S. sanctions that came after accusations of election meddling in 2024. For their part, the Chinese government is exercising no such restraint. In a statement to the press made from the embassy here in Washington, D.C. today, Chinese Ambassador Li Zheng had these words. The Russian government's decision to hold this ship under the pretense of a quarantine protocols is ridiculous when their failed containment procedures have led to the unnecessary loss of more territory than any other country in Eurasia. This reflects a strategy that fools no one. The Autumn Dawn is a U.S. flagship carrying the property of the People's Republic of China. The People's Republic has made it very clear that we are prepared to send a crew to take over the ship immediately and bear the risk of assailing it out of our Russian waters. There's no need for this vessel to be sailed to Vladivostok, and we would warn the Russian government that we are prepared to treat this as an international crisis.
0: Chuck, what is the Russian response? What exactly is their justification for taking the Autumn Don to Vladivostok?
3: The Russians claim that the nearest port to where they took control of the ship is Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky on the Kamchatya Peninsula. They argue that because this remote naval port city is so isolated, only being accessible by sea and air, it has been left completely contamination-free. They don't want to risk introducing the reanimating virus. Skeptics argue that in the wake of last year's drought in the grasslands between the Ukraine and Kazakhstan, Russia is experiencing its worst crop yields since 1963 and is in the midst of its own catastrophic food crisis, possibly incentivizing them to hold on to the autumn dawn.
0: RLA's Chuck Fleming in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Florida Governor Pete Peterson appeared on Capitol Hill this week to testify before the Congressional Armed Services Committee about exchanges made that resulted in the President's decision to not send military forces to Miami as the crisis there was developing. Governor Peterson, a longtime friend and ally of President Stevenson, was grilled about his role in leaving Miami to conduct its own defense as demonstrated by this tense exchange with Ohio Congresswoman Mary Walters.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Governor. I've got several questions, so I'm going to try to move quickly. When did you and Mayor Santiago Vasquez first talk to President Stevenson about sending the Federal Army to Miami?
4: Uh, I believe that was in a call we did with the President on June 18th.
5: And was that the first time you were made aware that Miami was developing into a crisis?
4: No. I had a call with Mayor Vasquez on, on June 15th, where the mayor informed me of the situation in Miami and his need to be reinforced. I told Mayor Vasquez that I was giving orders to mobilize the Florida National Guard at Camp Blanding and that we would be sending the 20th Special Forces Group and the 211th Infantry Regiment, along with brigades of ROTC cadets from Jacksonville University and the University of South Florida.
5: And when did these units join Miami's Defense Forces?
4: Uh, Those units did not engage with the forces in Miami.
5: And why not?
4: I received a phone call on... June 22nd, from the Secretary of Defense telling me that our National Guard forces were to stop at Fort Lauderdale, just north of Miami, and wait for the assault force from Fort Benning.
5: Four days later, at 2 a.m. on June 26th, the day forces from Fort Benning were scheduled to deploy, you had a final call with the President, is that right? Yes. Was Mayor Vasquez on that call?
4: Uh, No, he was not.
5: What did you and the president discuss on that call?
4: The president asked for an update on the situation in Miami. I informed him that the situation was deteriorating, but not beyond recovery, but that if we didn't begin relief operations within the next 24 hours, there was a high probability Miami's defense forces would be overwhelmed.
5: At any time, did the president ask you how many survivors were still in Miami? No. At any time, did the president tell you anything that would lead you to believe he was becoming inclined to abort the mission to relieve Miami?
4: No, he did not.
5: What were the next orders you received as it relates to the forces of the Florida National Guard?
4: At about 6 a.m. that same morning, I received a phone call from Joint Chiefs Chairman William Abibio instructing me that no relief forces were being deployed from Fort Benning and the Florida National Guard was being ordered to set up a permanent defensive line along Interstate 595, just north of Miami.
5: Did you ask the chairman of the Joint Chiefs why he was changing the orders?
4: I don't believe I did, but I did remind the chairman that we had hundreds of thousands of survivors still in the city that Miami's defense forces and the Florida National Guard remained committed to the city's defense, and that we had managed the crisis with the explicit expectation that federal military forces were on their way.
5: And what was Chairman Abibio's response? Governor, please answer the question.
4: He said, and I'm quoting here, you think I don't fucking know that.
5: Did he say anything else?
4: Uh, he said you think I don't fucking know I do not
1: know that the army was ready to go I was ready to go the planes were on the goddamn runway it was your friend in the big seat that decided to tuck his dick between his legs
4: that's what he said That's what the general said to me.
0: But as the assault force from Fort Benning finally began arriving this week, the White House remained quiet as the president endured fresh criticism for finally approving the assault force after the heaviest fighting had already concluded, and the city's status was downgraded from Stage 4 to Stage 3 infected. For more on that story, we go to our war correspondent, Kate Malick, in Miami.
6: The planes began arriving this week, bringing two infantry brigades from Fort Benning, but it comes after Miami's self-defense forces expanded their safe zone to include Gladeview to the north, Sweetwater to the west, and south as far as Palmetto Bay. The fighting, which had continued nonstop for weeks as forces struggled to relieve living strongholds, finally began to tail off with only a handful of neighborhoods being outside local government's control. While the assault force arrived too late to participate in the heaviest fighting, local government officials are telling me they are still grateful for their presence as city managers move from the combat phase of Miami's liberation to reclaiming the city for habitation. Prior to the outbreak, Miami had a population of approximately 2.5 million people. It's estimated that 300,000 citizens of the city fled as the outbreak was maturing and it's estimated as many as another 500,000 will ultimately be rescued from living strongholds. That leaves a staggering 1,700,000 reanimate corpses littering the city that will need to be disposed of.
0: Kate, is there any indication what the final casualty figures look like for the Miami
6: operation? It's hard to say, Brian, because there is no way to accurately quantify How many volunteers arrived from the sea lift over the course of the battle? Of Miami's original garrison of 12,000, it looks like the fighting resulted in about 4,500 casualties. Sadly, some of those local defense members were as young as 14. It is also estimated that another 3,000 casualties were recorded amongst the sea lift volunteers. Currently, Mayor Vasquez still has about 12,000 troops in Miami. Sadly, nearly all of the casualties here in Miami were either killed in action or had to be neutralized in quarantine.
0: Is there any indication what the next steps are going to be now that it looks like the city will be reclaimed?
6: Well, Mayor Vasquez, along with city planners, will be traveling to Washington, D.C. at the end of this week to meet with federal officials and strategize on a plan to repopulate the city once the cleanup is complete. Before the outbreak, Miami was home to some 850,000 households. While a census of survivors has yet to be done, and it's expected that those that fled the city will return once it's secure, Miami-Dade County could still have over half a million vacant homes that could become available for the displaced residents of cities such as Los Angeles San Francisco, or Houston. Reporting from the front in Miami, Florida, I'm Kate Malik.
0: Kate Malik in Miami, Florida, thank you. The U.S. Surgeon General's office released a statement this week reminding Americans that flu season is fast approaching and every American should get their flu shot. In a statement released by the Department of Health and Human Services, the Surgeon General advised, everyone over the age of six months should receive a flu shot immediately not just for your own immunity, but for the health of your community at large. Up to 10% of the American population gets the flu each year, and with symptoms that resemble the reanimating virus, it is imperative that we have as much compliance amongst the general population as possible in this, our second flu season of the pandemic. The CDC's Head of Infectious Disease and Frequent RLA Contributor, Dr. Krishna Singh, joins me now via Zoom. Doctor, thank you for being with us.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Singh, help us understand why it's so important that Americans get their flu shot this year.
1: Well, it's important every year. But with the reanimating pandemic sharing many of the same initial symptoms as influenza, it's now especially important. Don't forget, last year there were many stories, too many stories, of Americans facing blistering discrimination because they had the flu and people confused it with the RADM1 virus. In many cases, people were being treated with shameful hostility, being forced to shut themselves in at home, unable to go to work or school. And it wasn't just one or two cases. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of examples. It took a huge toll on the economic, political, and social welfare of our country.
0: Dr. Singh, all this comes in a week where the legislature in Colorado passed a bill requiring healthcare providers to report to the state government information on patients who refused the vaccine while at the same time providing a requirement that the vaccinated wear an unremovable bracelet identifying them as vaccinated. What are your thoughts on this move?
1: Well, if there's one thing that's been true since long before this pandemic, it's that Americans don't mind the government seeing their doctor's bills, but they hate the idea of the government seeing their doctor's records. I know this has generated a lot of controversy, but quite frankly, I think people are getting overexcited about it.
0: Why is that?
1: There is a long history of medical professionals having reporting standards to help control infectious disease in this country, and most other countries for that matter. And I view a reporting standard for people who refuse vaccination as a natural extension of that, especially in the context of the reanimating pandemic. The risk here is that a move like this would actually incentivize people who would otherwise get vaccinated to avoid vaccination.
0: I'm not sure I follow you, Dr. Singh. Please, help our listeners understand your thought process here.
1: It's pretty simple, really. If you become symptomatic and you're wearing a bracelet that identifies you as vaccinated, there's going to be a much greater likelihood that people will presume it's RADM1, and maybe rightly so. Whereas if you haven't been vaccinated, you could still try to operate under the assumption that it's influenza. It's extremely flawed logic, but people can exhibit some very irrational behavior in a time of crisis like this, especially when it could be their own lives they're trying to protect by avoiding quarantine.
0: Dr. Singh, What is the principal message you would want to give to our listeners going into this flu season?
1: Get your flu shot.
0: (laughs) I guess I had that coming. But is there anything else our listeners should be considering?
1: RADM1 is a disease with a very, very fast rate of progression. The amount of time from onset of symptoms to reanimation is typically measured in hours, not days or weeks. If someone you know has been exhibiting symptoms for more than 24 hours, it is highly unlikely it is RADM1 and you shouldn't treat them like a biblical leper.
0: Dr. Singh, thank you for being with us today. As always, we appreciate the work you and all your colleagues at the CDC are doing to help navigate us through this crisis. When we return... A sports memorabilia treasure makes an unexpected appearance in Nevada.
2: Hey there, it's me, Brian Miller again. Creator of Radio Living America. Well, here we are, episode 11, and you're still listening. So I guess that means you like the show. And that really means a lot to me. Oh, God, not another one of these things. Hang on. This will only take a second. never ends with these things does it if you're enjoying the show there's a lot of ways you can show your support giving us a five-star review at apple Podcasts really helps and please spread the word to anyone you think could become a fan of it also if you go to anchor.fm you can donate directly or visit our teespring page and check out our rla gear enjoy the rest of the season i'm gonna let you get back to brian andrews i think he's got some kind of story about a couple of guys trying to sell a stolen baseball card or something Oh, and get your flu shot.
0: Our final news item takes us to Las Vegas, Nevada, where the world's rarest baseball card suddenly reappeared this week when two men tried to sell the card, claiming it was a family heirloom. The card was quickly identified as one of baseball's most sought-after pieces of memorabilia, thought to be lost in the fall of the city of Los Angeles. While guidelines call for stiff sentencing on crimes involving looting, Military officials are taking a particular interest in the case, wondering how the unlikely pair were able to penetrate so deep into the fallen city. We take you to Las Vegas and RLA's Laura Sanders.
7: Before the pandemic, it was considered the Hope Diamond of baseball cards. After the pandemic outbreak, it was considered lost forever. A 1909 T206 Honus Wagner baseball card. Only 200 were produced and only about 60 are known to still be in existence. But even in the rare world of Honus Wagner cards, this was the most famous. Known as the Gretzky Wagner because it had once been owned by hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, it was in the best condition of any of the T206 Wagners and was last purchased by famed Los Angeles Lakers power forward Anthony Horton for $10 million. That is where the history of the Gretzky Wagner takes a dark turn. Horton is missing and presumed reanimated somewhere in Los Angeles, and the Gretzky-Wagner was last seen at his mansion in the Trousdale neighborhood of Beverly Hills in the northwestern sector of the Dead City. That is, until this week, when it walked into the Las Vegas showroom of Sports Memorabilia Appraiser and Auctioneer Sporting Collectible Verification Services, or SCBS, as they are commonly known. We managed to... Catch up with SCVS President Michael Whitney, and he recounted the story of seeing the card again.
1: So I'm sitting in my office and one of my guys from the floor comes in and says, you're not going to believe what just walked in.
2: Everyone welcome Brittany to the main stage.
1: When he told me what it was, I figured this has got to be a fake. But when I went out and saw it, I knew it was the real thing the moment I laid eyes on it. You gotta remember, I haven't just seen this card before, I've personally appraised this card in each of the last three times that Gretzky-Wagner went to auction, including the last one where Anthony Horton bought it. I mean, that said, you don't exactly need to be an expert to recognize it because it was still in the SCVS case we placed it in back in the last auction, complete with our hologram and a barcode. I guess these guys said they were brothers or something and they were from the area, I don't know. I asked them where they got it, they said their grandfather had just died and they found it in his attic. I guess it didn't occur to them to take it out of our case if they were gonna go with a story like that. Or maybe they thought I'd just look the other way. Anyway, I told them to give me a few minutes while I called a collector that I knew who wanted to buy a T206 and could pay cash. And then I immediately called the Las Vegas Police Department.
7: It turns out the would-be criminals John and Vincent Barron are in fact brothers from Las Vegas who perform a magic act known as the Mysterious Barons. The Clark County prosecutor filed charges of looting in a dead city, which if found guilty carries a mandatory penalty of service in a penal battalion. But when Army intelligence officials heard the story, they urged the district attorney to allow the brothers to plead guilty to criminal mischief in exchange for conventional military service. The Assistant District Attorney made these comments on Friday.
3: We've prosecuted many, many people for trying to sell stolen goods in Las Vegas that were looted from Los Angeles. But in every single case, the stolen property has come from the very edges of the city, such as Northern San Bernardino or Rancho Cucamonga. We suspect many have tried to penetrate deeper into wealthier Los Angeles neighborhoods, like Beverly Hills, Century City, or Santa Monica, But if people have tried, they never live to sell their stolen property in Las Vegas. We completely understand the military's interest in the Barron brothers. And for that reason, we will not be pursuing felony charges.
7: In all likelihood, the brothers probably entered the city via Route 2, which cuts through the Angelos National Forest to the city's east, or they entered by sea at Santa Monica or Marina del Rey along the city's western edge on the Pacific Ocean. Either way, they would have been required to travel miles, presumably on foot, through dense urban environments that have the largest population of reanimates in the country before they reached the once A-list neighborhood of Trousdale Estates in Beverly Hills. Military intelligence is sure to be interested in what methods they use to avoid contact with the reanimated and what they observed deep in the heart of Los Angeles County. As for the Gretzky Wagner, it has found itself back in the hands of the SCVS auction house as the family of Anthony Horton plans to sell the card and donate the proceeds to Survivor's Charities. In our interview earlier today, Michael Whitney made these comments about the upcoming auction.
1: This card didn't need to be more famous, but now with this whole story about coming out of the center of Los Angeles, I mean, I've never seen anything like the interest we're seeing in this card. You know what it's like? It's like, imagine Excalibur and the Holy Grail hooked up after getting drunk on a bottle of Chateau Lafitte and nine months later ended up having a kid. That kid is the Gretzky Wagner.
7: Reporting from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Laura Sanders. Back to you, Brian.
0: When we return, we'll be joined at the RLA discussion table by Father Arthur Martin,
7: You want a view of the pool. You want to order room service at two in the morning. You want to know that in a bug out situation, you're still the most important guest. You want to sleep in. You want to complete your journey. You want an armed escort to prevent an accident if there's an unfortunate reanimate experience. You want to get away. You want to fall in love again. Visit a Santa Bonita hotel near you and learn what it means to indulge yourself with luxury facilities, gourmet dining that meets government ration standards, an in-house security comprised exclusively of retired U.S. military special forces and British SAS. Relax in luxury with the peace of mind that can only come at a Santa Bonita hotel.
0: Welcome back to this week's edition of the RLA Discussion Table. I'm joined today by Father Arthur Martin, Archmandrite of the Celestine's Monastic Order of the Hermits of St. Damiano. Father Martin, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for hosting me.
0: Father Martin, it would be easy to make the assumption that there is a supernatural aspect to the reanimate crisis. We've had some of our best medical minds on this program, and they say the reanimates defy everything we know about the natural world. Do you believe this is an act of God? Perhaps a punishment from God?
4: Well, I would first challenge the assumption that there is no scientific explanation just because our best minds don't have one. I would prefer to characterize it as we don't have a scientific explanation yet. Assigning wrath of God to crisis is as old as disease and natural disaster itself, and quite frankly, it can often be the first refuge of the spiritual charlatan.
0: I'm surprised to hear this perspective from someone in your position. I would have thought you would have assigned all things in the world to God's will.
4: I do, but if something is painful or disappointing or destructive, I don't automatically attribute it to some kind of furious wrath and punishment on God's part. It's an extremely cynical view of God, in my opinion. God loves us very much.
0: But over a billion have died and reanimated, and billions more have been pushed into poverty. Believe me, I am quite aware. Then how do you
4: square this with God loving us? I square it by believing the relationship between God and humankind is like a parent with a child. God celebrates with us, God grieves with us, and God wants the best for us and from us. But God also knows that we don't develop and grow if we are bailed out of every bad position we find ourselves in, many of which are completely of our own making. Are you alluding to the origins of the disease? I am. Our science can't explain why people reanimate, but we know it begins with a virus, and that virus was introduced to humanity by deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. God did not introduce that virus to punish us, but now that our actions have unearthed it, God will not intervene and release us from the consequences of our actions.
0: But certainly, many of those who have succumbed to this pandemic or have somehow suffered as a result of it, had not done anything that would require them to be victims of this crisis.
4: Well, certainly that is true. But you can't possibly know what God knows, and God is visionary, God is creative. What we view as suffering and destruction may actually be a process of new creation. What seems like suffering on earth may actually be long-term growth to God.
0: So when you say this crisis could be a gateway to a new creation, are you lending credence to the theory that this is the apocalypse?
4: Not at all. I do not believe the apocalypse story is meant to be taken literally. I believe apocalypse is a choice and it is eternal, just as Genesis is eternal. It really depends on how the individual chooses to view the world.
0: There's a clandestine extremist group calling themselves the Legion for the Return of the Lamb, and they've been conducting acts of terrorism in the name of God. I'm aware of them. Based on our conversation, I assume you'd be very condemning of their actions.
4: There is nothing righteous about committing acts of violence in the name of God. As I mentioned before, God loves us and wants to celebrate with us, and there is nothing celebratory about violence. I am deeply saddened by their actions, and I think despite their intentions, they are actually separating themselves further and further from God.
0: When people come to you seeking spiritual direction, what guidance do you give them?
4: I tell people to be responsive to living in a world of suffering.
0: How specifically does one do that?
4: By living life to make the world a better place. Jesus tells us we don't know when the end time will happen, But be aware and be present for it. Live justly and compassionately now. And the end time will take care of itself.
0: Sage advice for any time indeed. Father Martin, thank you for being on the program and sharing these truly uplifting perspectives. That concludes this week's program. Until next time, I'm Brian Andrews asking that you stay safe, stay alert, and stay in the fight.